there's no possible future in which we're going to slaughter animals. This is one of these like clear as day generalizations that I think, but future that it only has like a handful of others that can lift like all vehicles will be electric, all vehicles will be autonomous, and we all slaughter animals for meat. Welcome to the Business for Good podcast, a show where we spotlight companies making money by making the world a better place. I'm your host, Paul Shapiro, and if you share a passion for using commerce to solve many of the world's most pressing problems, then this is the show for you. Hello, friend, and welcome to the 100th, yes, the 100th episode of the Business for Good podcast. This show began four years ago as a hobby to showcase cool people working to make the world a better place via business, and it has blossomed into a whole community of regular listeners who routinely offer feedback, both affirmation and criticism, all of which is appreciated. A hundred episodes later, well... It's still a hobby, but it's a hobby with a pretty good reach and the ability to do good in the world itself. I very much value hearing from listeners about how the show has impacted your life. It's especially gratifying when I hear from someone who says that they started a company after listening to the show or that they invested in a company they heard on here or they joined the staff of a company they heard on the podcast or they were just really inspired and given a sense of hope for the future from a guest who we had on. So if you want to offer your feedback, please go ahead to businessforgoodpodcast.com and let us know what you think. Now, if you're just tuning in for the first time, as you can guess, there are 99 evergreen back episodes just awaiting your download. But if you want to know which ones have been the most popular, there are a few standouts that outperformed the others, at least if downloads are the sole metric. For example, you may want to check out our back episodes with Whole Foods co-founder John Mackey, episodes number one and number 50, which were particularly popular. Uh, the Better Meat co-executive vice president, Donnie Kirkendall, my colleague who was in episode 71, was another big hit. Philosopher Peter Singer, or episode 62, was another popular one. Billionaire investor Jim Mellon, or episode 65, was also very good. And yes, the interview with my wife and author-slash-influencer Tony Okamoto in episode number 51 was interestingly still Still to this day, one of the most downloaded episodes of all time, too. Now add to that this 100th episode, which I'm sure will be among the most popular episodes we've released to date as well, as we have got on a very special guest. If you are familiar with the Silicon Valley world or the venture capital space in general, Steve Jurvetson is a name that needs no introduction. For the rest of you, Steve is a legendary venture capitalist, perhaps best known for his early backing of companies like Hotmail, Skype. PayPal, Tesla, SpaceX, and more. He sat on Tesla's board of directors for years and currently sits on SpaceX's board too. These big bets that he's taken on Ben Risky and out there companies have led Steve to astronomical financial success, pun intended, but also to become a very influential thought leader on space and technology issues along with others. In 2016, President Obama appointed Steve as a presidential ambassador for global entrepreneurship. He's also been honored as one of tech's best venture investors by Forbes, and he was named as the venture capitalist of the year by Deloitte. This dude is also a pretty prolific photographer too, it turns out, as I've learned. In fact, if you enter his name into Google without hitting enter, one of the dropdowns you'll get served from Google is Steve Jurritsen Flickr. Today, Steve runs a fund called Future Ventures with his business partner, Mariana Sayanko. And for full disclosure, as you'll hear in this interview, Future Ventures is an investor in my own company, The Better Meat Co. But as you'll also hear in this interview, it doesn't stop us from discussing taboo topics like Steve's personal wealth, how he spends his money, and more. Other interesting topics that we explore include what led a deep tech investor like Steve to invest in alternative meat. How many startup pitches does Steve hear weekly? What makes a good pitch and what gets him across the finish line to actually wire investment dollars into a startup's bank account? What company does Steve want you to start and pitch him on? 
What does he think that you should look for if you're seeking a co-founder? And for what does Steve think his future self will condemn his current self? We also talk about what would be one of the greatest discoveries ever in his view, what happened in his life when Steve stopped drinking alcohol, and for fun, what does Steve suggest you try as the funniest Google exercise? In all, it's a riveting conversation with one of the most consequential names in business, including businesses that are seeking to do good in the world. So without further ado, let me turn it over to Steve, and you can listen to the 100th episode of the Business for Good podcast. Steve Jurgensen, welcome to the Business for Good podcast. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. It is great to be with you. We are in your office here, which is, I think it must be like, maybe the largest private space collection museum in, in the country? No, I don't know if that's well, I don't know, but I'm willing to bet it's the largest in a venture capital office or any financial <laughs> services for okay. ostensibly pretending to be a different business. Yes. Okay, got yes. it. Yeah, so, so for those of you who are obviously listening and not looking, we are we have draped above us a, last, a NASA lunar orbiter solar panel from 1966. That's right. So there was something that was orbiting the moon in 1966 that made it back to the U.S., and you have the solar panel. I uh, know. It didn't make it back. They sent the data back. So oh. I have this equipment. We have the antennas on the roof, uh-huh. the solar panel, were a spare that okay. didn't fly. The lunar orbiter was it kept an orbiter on the moon. It had a dark lab, film lab, on, on board. It developed <laughs> analog film. Then used a television camera-like setup to send that data back to Earth and created these images, which are hanging above our head, the first high-res images of the moon. Amazing, amazing. All right, so that, that's going pretty far back to the 60s, but let's just go back to sure. you at college. So, you know, people, when start looking at bios from you, they're going to see all this stuff. Oh, this dude graduated from Stanford in two and a half years, right? Like, you were into electrical engineering, and mm-hmm. yet, I presume when you were studying electrical engineering, you weren't thinking, I'm actually going to become a venture capitalist, right? That's right. So, were you thinking you were going to be an engineer? Like, mm-hmm. what, and so, why the change? At some yeah, point yeah. in your life, you're like, okay, I'm actually going to invest in electrical engineers, but not be one of them myself. <laughs> yeah, it was an interesting transition. I started life in high school as a computer programmer on the Apple II. It was like a dream of mine, C. C. Jobs. And I didn't know what I wanted to do per se, other than it was science and engineering, writ large, something like that. And I didn't have any venture capitalists in my upbringing, no role models, no one I knew. Uh, Had had you heard of it? I had heard of it only because my dad worked for a chip company that had Seven Rosen as an investor. And I never met these people, but I heard that they were venture investors. Got like semiconductor chips, not potato chips. Exactly. Exactly. The other kind of chips. So the transition really was a random walk. When I was an undergrad studying electrical engineering, I went all the way to a PhD, which I started in we now call AI or own. left that thinking I wanted to go back to be an engineering manager somehow. So doing chip design at Hewlett Packard, but I just didn't really want to be an engineer forever. I thought engineering managers have more leverage. So the one and only time my career path went according to plan is I thought, well, gosh, I'd like to go to business school so that I could somehow accelerate my path to engineering management, whatever that meant. And I, to get to business school, I went to Bain & Company, a management consulting firm for about three and a half years, worked for high-tech clients. That did, in fact, get me to business school. So that part went according to plan. But I was a little lost. By this point, I wasn't sure I didn't want to come back to engineering management. So I did product marketing at Apple and Next, going back to Steve Jobs, my desire to see him in action. But I was still lost. Clearly, after my second year of business school, I did not know what I was going to do other than go back to Bain, do my management consulting. And out of the blue, a venture capitalist pinged me from Greylock and said, hey, we're interviewing someone I had worked with prior. And that led to a whole long process of interviewing, learning about, and discovering, yes, I do want to become a venture capitalist. And that's what I now do. And you became a partner there pretty quickly at Greylock. So you- uh, at DFG. At DFG. So Greylock, Greylock was the interview. 
it led to a job offer and me joining Draper Associates. With, with Tim Draper. Exactly. Right? Got it. And you became a partner there in very short order. Mm-hmm. And you made a lot of big bets that people now perceive as legendary. So, you know, you're betting on Hotmail at a time when everybody else is paying for email and a company says, hey, we want to give away email for free. And you say, <laughs> sign me up. And, you know, uh, many other companies, right? So, mm-hmm. I mean, if you think about the companies that I think you're most well known for having picked, it would be Hotmail, Tesla, Planet Lab, SpaceX. So there are other mm-hmm. big ones that have been like home runs for you. Well, they've been some big, even bigger. Well, not bigger, but oh, big I, home I, runs that are like Skype as well. Yeah. yeah. Oh, gosh, there's been a bunch. There have been a bunch of IPOs, probably an aggregate about a, almost a trillion dollars of economic value growth in the companies that I've invested in or led mm-hmm. investments in. So it's been a spectacular juggernaut. Lately, it's been entirely focused on what we call deep tech or companies that are changing yeah. the world so better, not the internet, so we get rich quick. Schemes. Yeah, I want to yeah. talk about that transformation a little bit later because sure. that, that seems to be like a, a, a pretty big pivot for you, like in terms of future ventures and what the goal is of, of this particular fund that we're sitting in right now. Sure. But let's just go back to those days because at a time, you know, there were, there were times when Tesla and SpaceX, like people were essentially counting them out like they were against the ropes and you were still betting on them. Mm-hmm. You've talked about how you think entrepreneurs should be more like Elon Musk. So what was it about, like, you know, <laughs> your sitting there thinking, okay, this company is against the ropes, is before NASA's, you know, giving them any great billion dollar deals or anything. And you're thinking, you know, I'm gonna pump some money into this thing. Like, what was it back then before Elon Musk was Elon Musk that you were thinking, I see some real potential in this guy? Right, well, it's an interesting question because in some ways he's always been the same to me. I first met him in 96, invested in his cousins, got to know each other in that context. First invested in Tesla in 2007 and joined the board and then SpaceX in the late 2008, early 2009 process of investing. And he didn't go through a profound change per se, other than I got to see him when times got tough, right? In December 2008, when, my gosh, everything was going wrong for all the companies. The rockets were blowing up, the roadster was negative gross margin, uh, I could go on and on and on. And, and to, to be succinct though, he stepped in and saved the company in a way like I've never seen any entrepreneur go all in all of his net personal wealth, net debt to save Tesla in his darkest hour. And so that was new information, in a way, to see that the true passion, missionary zeal of someone like that could weather such a storm. It's what we hope we see in most of the entrepreneurs that we back, but sometimes a lot of them don't get tested quite like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that was the ultimate test. So, um, you know, how does that come across before? It's like when you speak with someone, you can sense, you know, beyond Elon, Elon and others that are some of our you know, favorite entrepreneurs, there's a deep, passionate drive for what they're doing. It's not get rich quick, right? That is ephemeral, that is not scale, that does not last through tough times. And they get you jumping out of your seat with this whole infectious enthusiasm for what they're pitching, whatever it might be. You know, is it rockets, is it cars, is it waste management? You know, is it a better meat product? The people that are doing it for a reason, it is unmistakable. Yeah. And you can ask simple questions like, what does the business look like in 10 years or in 50 years? And they have an immediate answer, right? They're arbitrage seeking opportunists, they laugh at the question. They're like, wait, 50 years, are you kidding me? Oh. <laughs> I'll be on my fifth startup by then. I'll be retired, you know, drinking martinis on a beach. There's no way that I'm gonna be working hard at this company 50 years from now. Whereas the true pioneers and missionaries, they're like, of course I have been thinking about that. So speaking of 50 years from now, then, mm-hmm. like, you know, when I listen to interviews with Elon Musk, he seems extremely driven to make life multiplanetary. This is like, you know, his like lodestar is to make life multiplanetary. You've indicated to me, though, that that's not really your goal, that making life multiplanetary mm-hmm. is not what 
you know, gets you out of bed in the morning. Sure. So what is it? Like, why are you so excited about SpaceX? I mean, you guys are a huge investor in, in SpaceX. You really bet right. big on it. So what is it? I mean, obviously, it's more than that. You think it's a good investment. You presumably think it's good for the world in some way, too. Yeah. So it's interesting. The question's savvy in that you've read some of my other interviews or listened to them. So let me be clear. There's some companies where the big dream, the star on the horizon is one that like, we want to do everything we can to help achieve, like Tesla's mission, for example, to make, you know, get us off oil and gas forever. In the case of SpaceX, it's not that we don't like the idea of becoming a healthy monetary. That's super important, sort of, but it's not the investment thesis. The way I qualify that is if that's all they ever did, I'm not sure we'd invest from a business point of view. From a personal philanthropy point of view, is it good for the world? Yeah, I still think it's good for the world, but it's, that's a tough business proposition. The thing that hooked us on SpaceX and continues to hook us is that it's an enormous near-term opportunity to help life on Earth and to scale business here. So they're already far and away the largest launch provider, you know, getting stuff into orbit, lowering the cost dramatically, like 10 to 100x from where it used to be, which enables Planet Labs and other companies to do all these amazing things in space, like image the entire planet every day, count every tree on Earth every day, et cetera. So on Earth imaging, that's one big advance that SpaceX enables. The other, of course, is Startlink, which they're directly doing, which is connecting the next two or three billion people online who aren't connected to the internet today in any meaningful way, in any continuous way, and allowing them to couple to online education, to couple to, you know, being entrepreneurs, and, you know, in a sense, democratizing access to the largest precursor for being part of the global economy. I mean, it's hard to imagine what life's like if you don't have an internet connection in the modern world, right? So huge benefit, right? So in a simple way, there's money in them hills, you know, <laughs> there's benefit for humanity here on earth, and it's all happening right now versus it's off world, it's in the future, and it's got risk, right? Um, in terms of timing. Got it. Interesting. Yeah. Do you think that there is some, well, let me put it to you this way, actually. If life does, if human life mm -hmm. becomes multi-planetary and we were to find some conscious life somewhere else out there, mm -hmm. and so it is Europa, one of these planets with big water. Well, you said conscious life in our solar system. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Would it change how you feel about whether we go there or not? Oh, gosh, yes. And because you would be more interested or more concerned? Oh, Lawrence. So mm -hmm. if we get to what about conscious life outside our solar system, I think it's much more likely. So I think it's vanishingly unlikely. Eventually, small likelihood we'll oh, find we it in we our solar system. Massive liquid oceans in our solar well, system. Exactly. But it has something smart. And you said conscious. I mean, like I mean, neurons I mean, and you know, well, nervous system. Yeah, and but not every, every, well, every fish has what you just described, right? Like right. every but every fish has its consciousness. I would be so incredibly amazed and and I wouldn't even know where to start right. on like we should be sending all kinds of research missions there. Uh -huh. Yeah, so uh, yeah, yeah well, I, I'm using consciousness just to mean that they're aware, not that they might be advanced or civilized. Yeah, or but even, even yeah. if it's fish. Right, right. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, but even fish would be amazing because uh, if there's fish, there's an ecosystem and there's other stuff. Yeah. And like, wow, is this be like one of the greatest discoveries, you know, maybe top two or three ever made? Yeah, I mean, and then we'd have to find out, like, do we share an ancestor? Like, were they mm -hmm. both yeah, right. seeded by a comet? Or, exactly. is they, or is there a different genesis altogether? Do they have DNA and RNA? Do they right. show the precursors of, I mean, you'll learn a lot. You yeah. get the fish from, you know, the frozen ocean or <laughs> the frozen part, you know, in the liquid oceans. <laughs> How did they adopt it? The temperature. You know, right. What does this tell us about their likely ubiquitous aspect of life throughout the universe? So, right? So NASA has this Office of Planetary Protection designed to basically prevent us from, you know, essentially wiping out another, you know. Star Trek thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a, it's like a prime directive. That's right. right. Like you don't want to 
interfere and have like some Holocaust that goes on because we arrived there. So what do you think is the appropriate protection? Like you're expressing great enthusiasm oh, yeah. for, you know, checking out the fish of Europa, let's say, mm -hmm. but what protection should we be taking to right. ensure that, you know, we don't cause some massive extinction event? Right. And I think we cause a lot of them on Earth. Let's, you know, how do we not do them in Europa? I think the, the obvious first and emphatic is to be robotic only, of course. Okay. Right? And now that's not a perfect solution, but it's, Right. Let's be really clear. Nothing that's mm -hmm. not robotic should be sent to these worlds. And that's important. It's like, I think moon and Mars are interesting human destinations. I don't think the moons of Saturn or Jupiter are interesting human destinations ever. Mm. Right? And certainly not if we discover anything. Didn't you see like, Europa report? I, yeah, you, know. <laughs> no, no. you never watched it out. It's okay. all out there. It can really, yeah. The distance <laughs> from Mars to yeah. Jupiter is yeah. dramatic. If you yeah. actually look at it spaced out, it's like, wow, that's a big jump. That's yeah. a big leap. And it's just a big gas ball. So, yeah. but to... Uh, there are sanitation procedures and things where we might gain some confidence that what we're sending is not microbially you know, infected with tardigrades or you name it. You know, mm -hmm. It's not perfect, but we can do our best. I think what we'll learn is worth the risk of possible contamination. You know, by the way, that that contamination could possibly live in that environment, might maybe, and that it would interfere and kill everyone thing there. That's, these are some pretty big leaps. Right, yeah, you know, when you think about like European colonists who came here and their microbes wiped out many of the people who were living exactly. here, but they didn't, their microbes didn't wipe out the trees, right? Like, right. and so, exactly. and, and then if there is life on another planet, they're even further removed from us than the trees are. That's right. You know, so, you know, there is a, there is some question. The other, then the question would be, how do we treat the individuals? Like, is it, you know, do we start killing them to study them, you know, and so on? That would be another interesting ethical question, but. Catch and release fishing. Catch and release fishing. Yeah, well, you know, there's a lot of interesting studies of wildlife now where we're basically studying feces as opposed to capturing the actual animal, mm -hmm. which like, helps us to understand various things. But I had a feeling that most of the time that we've not shown as a species a desire to, you know, take into consideration the interests of other species probably would also not take individual, the individual animals who might be living there. But let's bring it back to Aaron, mm -hmm. because a lot of people who are listening here, they are interested in your career as a venture capitalist, not your speculations on what life might be like on the moons of Jupiter and Saturn. And so I, I want to just ask folks what I know many people are wondering. Like people are thinking, you know, if I was pitching to Steve, like, what does he want to hear? Like, first of all, like, how many pitches are you hearing a week? Mm -hmm. How many of them cross the finish line? And what is it that gets you to cross the finish line with them? Yeah, it's just like, like by cross the finish line, I mean, you wire them money. Ah, okay. So there's a pretty wide front at the front, which is random inbound email, and then through my partner, Mario and I, there's, you know, I want to guess scores per day. Oh, inbound proposals. Yeah. yeah. I mean, every, every scores per day. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, between 24 and 36 a day would probably be my ballpark guess. Let's say 20. Let's just be, let's go well into that range. So we make the math easier later. So, you know, you're you're looking at 500, actually, like over 7,000 a year. And because I don't rest on the weekends. And at the end of the end of the year, we might have less than 10. So that gives you the sense of them. In the peak of the dot-com boom, it was even bigger on the front end mm. or more per day. And yeah. it, when, when any arbitrage seeking opportunities could rock, yeah. rock flush. So, so you're not even making one deal a month. Mm. No, no, slightly less than that, about 10 a year. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And so what is it like? So that's an extremely rarefied number, you know, 10 out of 7,000. Mm -hmm. What is it? What do those 10 have in common that led you to think, I want to own part of this company? Yeah, yeah. So part of an answer I can give you would be helpful to your listeners. That is things that are generalizable, things that they could make use of. Maybe I'll start there. Okay. The most important answer is the part that won't help at all, but, but it answers the question truthfully from inside. So the parts that help are, you know, and this may be not dissimilar from other venture firms, you know, passionate entrepreneurs that are looking to change the world for the better, that's 
at last point actually started to lose some VCs. Like, I don't care, I just want to make money, right? Whereas like we would not invest in gambling, we'd not invest in jewel, we'd not invest in things that prey on human frailties or, you know, including social media. Like we just wouldn't invest in any of that stuff. And making the world better, we also had to hold a high bar for that. So we don't invest in enterprise software of any kind because like really it's not that important. And a threshold question you might ask is, can we imagine 50 years from now, history books being written about this company, whatever it is. And even the major enterprise software companies, pick the biggest, most successful ones of their era. Would anyone really care about Oracle or Salesforce or any of the ones that are the most important companies in enterprise software? So high bar. So back to okay. people, big idea, change the world for the better, that exploit something, take advantage of something that's new. So in other words, if this business idea, whatever it is, could have been done 10 years ago, we almost certainly won't talk to them or invest or pursue it. Because if it could have been done 10 years ago, why hasn't it been? Right? We don't believe a ripe idea sits on the shelf for 10 years and you know, someone finally takes the book off the shelf and executes. Might happen, but we, not in our business, not in high tech. And that usually means explaining something around Moore's Law or what's going on in AI or, or mobility or the internet back in the day. You know, there's something that's the sea change afoot that is enabling a new era of companies. Okay, so that all... Sounds, and we can double click on some of these, like what are the attributes of the founder that make them great? You know, is it having enough intelligence to be adaptive and nimble, having enough self-confidence to be humble? There's some enigmatic subpoints there. But let me get to that thing I alluded to, which is what's this crazy thing we're doing that, that no one can make sense of? And that is we, at least at Future Ventures, also filter for, is this proposal or idea or business something that's unlike anything we've seen before? Yet adjacent to things we've seen before. Now, that, the reason I say that's, not so helpful is if you're not in our firm, how the hell do you know what we've seen, right? You have to do a lot of research on us to deduce, well, they've probably seen this, and they've probably seen that, but have they seen this, right? Because that's, it's inward looking. But it is absolutely the driver, it has been for like 20 years now of how I invest. And my partner working on it the same, which, which is if there are five or 10 companies doing something similar, chances are low that we know how to pick the winner. We're not operating managers. We don't go in there and say, we've done all our work, we met with all five competitors, we spent six months of due diligence, you're the winner. We haven't honed that skill set and we wouldn't know what to for. Sometimes we get lucky, we invest in a company that actually has four or five competitors and just didn't know that. And then sometimes they end up winning and sometimes they don't. But we have other filters then for how we uh, do who's going to win and who's not. But my point is this it's much easier, and I think, a source of continual learning on our part and continual success in our investment to not invest where the herd is going, not invest in obvious sectors, but to try to continually expand this frontier of technology to new frontiers and new areas. And right, when we get to meet and meet alternatives, you know, that has been one of these examples of my long investment history of prior things getting me to have a fair mind and finally invest in things that I would never imagine in the mm -hmm. 90s that I'd ever be looking at anything food related, like that's mind boggling to me yeah. today. And I know that five years from now, we'll be investing in things I couldn't name today, without a doubt, or even next year, frankly. So let's talk about that then, because you are, you know, very passionate on a number of issues, but on climate and on the environment, mm -hmm. it's something that I know that you are very concerned about. You were sharing on social media recently, the Boston Consulting Group's new report suggesting that alternative meets have a much bigger bang for the buck of the investor if they're interested in, in climate, climate impact. Yeah. In climate impact. Thank you. How much of your portfolio today is something that's going to have beneficial impact on climate? Mm -hmm. And is it going to be more in the future? And then we can talk about meat too. But presuming that, you know, you are in accord with the view that this is really among the most pressing things that humanity faces, how much of it, how much of your investment dollars are going toward that yep. versus other things that might be deep tech that are cool and then have mm -hmm. some benefit, like, let's say, bringing email to everybody like Starlink. <laughs> we don't do that. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, no, no. Right. Starlink, I mean, bringing internet to people. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right. But 
you know, that's not a climate benefit. It's it's a good benefit. It mm-hmm. makes the world better, but it's not going to, you know, avert climate change. So what portion of what you're doing is climate oriented and what do you think it will be in the future? Right. So there's, um, there's a, an interesting broad swap cut, which is almost all of it is indirectly with the grand exception of life sciences, which is about 45 to 50% of what we do. So that's already half the fun and all. And I'll let you why it's like the, the human health related ones, like mental health related companies, you know, reproductive longevity related companies, et cetera. They're important, but it's not directly on a climate thesis. And that, that right, it's about 45% of what we do. There's one other exception, which you alluded to, you know, SpaceX, and one might argue boring company similarly that are not obviously directly connected to the climate, even if they bring efficiencies to these systems and enable others. Mm-hmm. Well, actually boring, in fact, you know, reducing soul deadening traffic and being an EV only solution. You might argue as an indirect you know, climate angle, but it wasn't the best yeah. Let's it's, put it that way. It's EV yeah. only because you couldn't have emissions. You don't want it. Yeah, yeah. The whole dream here of the small tunnels is do it EV only and you don't have to worry about all the air handling equipment, you know, yeah. giant tunnels. And the cost of the tunnel goes dramatically down, scales with the area of the board face and mm-hmm. so you lower the size of your tunnel. You have this polynomial improvement in cost. SpaceX similarly enables Planet Labs. Planet Labs is an environmental company primarily, first and foremost, as a PBC, that is their mission, but it's indirect. Okay. So it wasn't, to be honest, we did not write the check to Boring or SpaceX saying, cha-ching, here's another climate company, right? It's a post-rationalization. Now, that being said, almost all the other ones are in the sense that either they're directly working on it, like Commonwealth Fusion, creating baseband you know, energy with no carbon production, or any of the meat-related companies, as we'll get to, I'm sure, later in this podcast, where like climate is squarely one of the checkbox items of why we get excited and yeah. why we think there's going to be an ever-growing excitement in the category because that's the inevitable future. It's sort of like being on the right side of history. But then across almost all the others, here's the simple question you might ask. If you're building something, an object in the world, because again, we don't do enterprise software, we don't do super internet, so like we're investing in things a lot of times, it's either sustainable or it's not. Hmm. And it's kind of like an obvious point. If you're thinking long-term, you don't want to invest in something that's not sustainable. It's kind of like, it, it sometimes makes people chuckle. It's like looking at you and it's a bunch of non-sustainable investment propositions. Like who wants to do that, right? Yeah. That's just something big companies do to defend why they're doing terrible things to the world. Yeah, I guess it's like, you know, if somebody is expecting to be out of it within five years or seven years, it may be unsustainable over 30, but it's not an investment problem for them. Like somebody investing in oil today. Yeah, right? I run. like I just can't. And I don't fathom folks who want to enable that. They're yeah. like, you're going to like hit your ride to, yeah. I have no respect for that. <laughs> okay, so let's talk yeah. about what you do have respect to or mm-hmm. and what you do want to hit your ride to. Sure. So you have become known in recent years for being a food tech guy, which as you said, would have been, you know, anathema to you 20 years ago, let's say. But well, no, you, unfathomable. Yeah, yeah. Not that I would be opposed if he's like, what? Like, yeah. How did that happen? Not opposed. Yeah. yeah just yeah. it would have been very hard for you to, to comprehend right. how that could be. But, you know, you were a big believer in Memphis Meats, which is now mm-hmm. Upside Foods. You're invested in Better Miko. And I believe you have some other food tech investments too, right? Like New Culture. Right. And, which yep. is doing mm-hmm. precision fermentation to make milk proteins. That's right. And so now you're in this new world, right? Mm-hmm. And so one has been a learning curve for you. And then two, should we expect to see more? Like, are you mm-hmm. looking for more opportunities Absolutely. in tech? And, and mm-hmm. is it, you know, upside, new culture, better meat code, these are all companies that are trying to reduce our reliance on animals in the food system. Mm-hmm. Uh, so is, is that the focus here? Or are you looking at other food technologies that may be unrelated to displacement of animals? Like, what is it that Steve Jurbertson and Future Ventures are looking for in, this, in the food tech space now? 
Yeah, that's a great question. And so for context, about 10 years ago, we started a quest. I posted it online on blogs and gosh, is there, is there anyone who's figured out a scale way to solve a meat manufacturing problem? Is if I were to reduce it to in a nutshell. There were some early, even 10 years ago, precursor companies we met with who were claiming they could 3D print, you know, meat the way you 3D print, you know, replacement organs and human surgery. Didn't think that would scale for a variety of reasons. I still believe that. 3D printing is not the answer. At least if there's a 1D nozzle, you know, rastering back and forth. It's just like, there's no way you can make metric tons of stuff that way, efficient. But we didn't have the answer. We didn't know what it was. We just knew we wanted a solution. That's what eventually led us to lead this myself, specifically to lead the Series A of Memphis Meads at the time. Brought in Bill Gates and Richard Branson, a bunch of co-investors, great company. That was, and it is still an early pioneer in cellular agriculture, as we now call it, we used to call it clean meat, we have to call it uh, a number of different things. And, and the, mar the marketing keeps changing. But the simple idea is growing the actual alien cells or avian cells in a reactor instead of growing whole animal. And the motivation there, you mentioned in the premise of your question, wasn't, uh, I have to say, uh, animal welfare is important to me, that it wasn't the single driving factor. The single driving factor that trumped that was there's no possible future in which we're going to slaughter animals. This is one of these like clear as day generalizations that I think about the future that it only has like a handful of others that can look like all vehicles will be electric, all vehicles will be autonomous, and we all slaughter animals for meat. But, and I will bet any amount of money to any listener on this that that, isn't, that will be the case 50 years from now that no one disagrees with that. So I can't predict the wind transition, by the way, occurred, but I'm willing to take big bets on when it will be that no one disagrees that the future is a certain way, right? Mm -hmm. And I... I made these bets on electric vehicles before the penetration was even like 0.1%. And now, of course, it's obvious to all, all vehicles, electric, at least all cars. And I would argue it's all vehicles, but I digress. So after investing in, in what's now called upside, you were left scratching your heads, well, what hasn't been solved? If we assume they were gonna be successful and they're a leader in what now has a number of fast followers globally, you know, doing similar things, but they're you know, still, uh, I believe, by some metrics, we'll soon see in the next month or two when the FDA. It's always a month or two away whenever well, I talk okay. effects. Well, let's just say that hopefully they will receive a certain yeah. approval that puts them in a certain pole position in the U.S. That, that I, I, right? I, I pray from, from your lips to the heavens that it's true. I would be thrilled <laughs> for that to exactly. happen. Okay, well, let's put that aside because I'm probably not supposed to talk about that. The, the, but what's unsolved, right? There are companies going after us. And remember my premise? We invest in things that are unlike anything we've seen before. So we're not going to go off and invest in three or four other Memphis meets like companies, right? Well, let's do fish, let's do chicken, let's do whatever they weren't doing at the time that are, if you think about it, step and repeats of the same idea, just different species. We would do that because that's all like, it's all the same, right? By our filter. So the big unsolved problem in our opinion was, well, one was milk, could cheese. And so that was one branch. The other was, well, wait a second. There's still a large part of the market that is not well served today because of price. And so we asked in an open, sort of brainstorming exercise, what is the ultimate end game? What is gonna be the cheapest source of meat-like products and protein in the future that is undebatable, that is like this uh, inevitable. And so we look, we look at insects, we look at a whole bunch of stuff, plants, plant isolates, you know, algae bunch of stuff, nothing beat mycelium and its growth rate, right? I know I'm preaching to the choir here, so full disclosure, right? Let's, both of us on this page agree, but when you go from zero to harvest in under 20 hours, that's hard to beat. No plant grows that fast, no animal grows that fast, and so, it sort of, the light bulb went off. It's like, wow, this is the ultimate end game. This will be how we make, and, and especially by the way, if it's healthy and it tastes like meat and you know, all the other things, cheap beet stocks, cheap post-processing, all this, are all checked off lots. That's, that's different from cellular agriculture. It was new and unlike anything we've seen before. So that's the best in that. Now to your question, I can't tell you, we looked at feedstocks like back when, you know, fetal 
you know, bovine serum was like, NFBS was a big precursor and, you know, various elements of the supply chain and feedstocks. Well, maybe there's a play there, right? Because we assume it's going to take over the whole world. It's like, how does it restructure everything? A play in vertical urban farming. Maybe you're going to move the, the locus of production into parking lots you're no longer going to need in an urban environment because in all cars are autonomous. You don't need so many parking lots. Maybe we convert those into food manufacturing facilities for, you know, for meat alternatives of the future and other indoor farming, other indoor farming initiatives, but nothing quite penciled out. Like we be enamored with these thoughts, but either market size, market timing, some other factors. So I can't tell you what the next one would be, but we're open-minded. We're like welcoming all covers and would expect to invest more in this because you got like a trillion dollar sector of the economy days to completely change out in 50 years. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. Right. It has to, but by the way, just, you know, like one of the factors that played in was China can't do to Africa what the U.S. did to Brazil in the Amazon. Like that is going to be a travesty for biodiversity, right? And they're already buying a huge swath of land in Africa to grow the cattle and pork that they want for their domestic market. The U.S. did that to Brazil, primary source of deforestation ever since 1980. Literally 99% of all deforestation in the Amazon is thanks to American green beef for the fast food chains. Like it's disgusting, right? And yet. Of course, other parts will willing to follow our lead if there isn't a better alternative. That would be obviously a really horrible outcome. I want to just ask you one thing about something that you said during this, that you said that animal welfare is important to you, but it's not your primary motivation. And, you know, of course, deforestation has a very negative impact on animal welfare because it mm -hmm. destroys wildlife habitat. But how do you feel about animals? Like, to my knowledge, you don't have pets. I um, used to. You used to. Okay. Yeah. Like, so babies and pets have traded off. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Sometimes the babies want pets. Yeah. Um, but I've had pets, I think, my entire life that I haven't had babies. Oh, in other words, and they'll come. I know they'll come back as soon as yeah. the babies are old enough to take care of the pets. Yeah. So you have said in other venues, for example, that you think that, let's say, 50 or so years from now, that people will look back on how we treated animals for food in the same with the same type of repugnance that people look back on, on, on slavery. That's right. And so I, I want to ask you then, you know, how much does that affect your choices today, either in your personal life or in your investing? You know, when you think about because mm -hmm. I mean, it's very it's a it's a pretty harsh condemnation, right? To compare yeah. something to slavery, which is, you know, widely viewed as an abomination. <laughs> and so thankfully, but how does that affect you? Like, do you think about that? Like, do you think, hey, like we're going to be condemned by our descendants? Like, what, what is your actual view on this? Yeah, no, it's fascinating. So to amplify your point, there aren't any other examples I can think of in myself or in people I know where I feel with incredible clarity that my future self will condemn my present self as morally culpable as being unthinkably wrong on something, right? You usually don't maintain that cognitive dissonance in any way that makes sense. And, and I can see the path of how I'm gonna get from here to there. And like why my future self will look back and say that, yeah, I find it hard to change, hard, but not possible to change my current behavior. Um, and it drives a lot of my investment decisions. So what do, what do I mean by this in this analogy in slavery? So if it's not obvious, the slavery analogy was that, you know, the nuance behind it is there were a lot of Americans that had slaves or condoned it or didn't condemn it. They didn't rise up in the streets the way we might today right. when it was hard to do so. And if they didn't, they wanted to. <laughs> they were, yeah. Like they, they wanted to be in that class. You know? Oh yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Right. Like, like they, they wouldn't go visit the slave ships as they disgorged the right. stench of humanity that went through the squalid, I mean, just in horrible conditions of you know, coming across from Africa, you know, can't even stand up in the boats. And you know, people would just look, look the other way. In the same way that we wouldn't want to go to a slaughterhouse, even if we could as a meat eater today. Right? I know the meat eaters would not go in there. Let's spend a couple hours watching how that sausage got made or that chicken got gutted or you name it, right? It's just like they won't. And then there's laws that prevent you from 
doing this and taking photos and stuff. It's crazy, right? But transition to current slavery, a tradition of clarity and whale oil, as you know, and you mentioned in your book, once you have an economic alternative and you're allowed to change your practices, the psychology follows. It's, it's sort of not practice what you preach, but preach what you practice. That once you change your behavior, you can change your thinking. And I think that's the weird psychology of meat consumption. Sadly, and you can correct me if this data is incorrect, but last time I looked, the, despite years, decades of evangelism, the percentage of vegetarians in America has not dramatically changed, right? right. Um, and there's been a lot of effort. There's been people like getting more and more vocal and they have social media and they have all kinds of new techniques to try to get the word out and there's this stubborn majority that doesn't change. But I think they will change when they have economic alternative. Yeah, it's even, it's even more sobering than that. It's not only that you don't have any real a tangible increase in vegetarianism, but the vast majority of people who do become vegetarians stop, and even worse, mm -hmm. per capita meat consumption continues to rise. So it would be one thing if the, you didn't I mean, net new vegetarians, so people were eating half the meat that they used to, but in fact, people were eating more meat per person than ever before that's right. in all of human history. Like despite huge amounts of effort going into trying to top the benefits of meat reduction, meat demand, including in the United States, not just in China and Brazil, but in the US and in Western Europe, most of Western Europe, it's still continuing to go up. It's really and, sad. And so yeah. it brings to mind a line that uh, the author and a friend of mine, AJ Jacobs, said, I don't know if he invented this line, but he's told it to me, so I'll count him as the inventor. He said, it's easier to act your new way, act your way into a new way of thinking than to think your way into a new way. Of oh, thinking. I love that. That's and, beautiful. You know, you see, yeah. Basically, you know, once you are the type of person who is enjoying these meat alternatives. Now you're also the type of person who maybe starts to feel a little uneasy about what's happening in that slaughterhouse or inside mm -hmm. of the factory farm and, exactly. and so on. So I, I hope it's 50 years, it's hard to see, but I-, I, I think I, it'll happen sooner. I think it is an inevitability looking after 50 years, but I think the transition will be catalyzed through groups that are offering the alternatives. And yeah. we saw a hint of that with the plant-based alternatives. They don't scale that well, they're not as cost-effective. People care about price. And so kind of like Tesla by analogy, you want to come in with a better product, better in every way. And then, yep. oh, by the way, you save the world, get us off gas. That's great. I feel better about my choices. But yeah. lo and behold, you weren't, people weren't doing that prior, right? Yeah, most people aren't buying a Tesla to save the world. They're buying it because it's a cool car that is awesome, right. that does all these cool things. That reminds me a little bit of like quill pens, you know? So like mm -hmm. we were using for millennia quill pens and, you know, people shifted away from them, not because they cared that they were live plucked from geese, which is a very torturous thing to do. But, you know, with a metal fountain pen that was invented in the 19th century, now all of a sudden you can write uninterrupted. You don't have to dip the quill in the ink well. You can stop your thoughts. Right. You don't have to sharpen the quill. Like all these things that made metal fountain pens just dramatically better than quills and sure. caused a huge shift over from this animal exploitative way of writing to a new way of writing where you get the same experience you're writing, but it's just way better. It's yeah, way better. I, I like to sometimes call this overcoming the activation energy of sustainability that we can imagine a global, either minimal in terms of consumption of resources or maximum in terms of utility, that's on the other side of some hump. That hump could be R&D dollars, that hump could be showing people the light, but it happens throughout the economy and yeah. it's a powerful thing. You can see an automotive that should give you faith that this is gonna happen in food production. Yeah. And and the other thing is you, could, you just like, you can't use more land for meat production. Right. Right? It's like, it's like, it's impossible. Right. It oh, yeah, can't be that this will follow. Right? Yeah, well, we're not gonna be farming the moon. We're not gonna be farming Mars. Sure. We have one celestial body to farm. Sure. So speaking of uh, getting over the hump, uh, well, I just wanna mention, you know, you, you, you mentioned that these companies you invested in, it's like a trillion dollars of this value creation and, and so on. But you've also told me that you've never sold a share in one of these companies sure. that you have invested in. And that when there've been cash acquisitions, like with Skype, where you've made actual cash, but you don't intend to use these shares ever. I mean, maybe, right. maybe you're gonna do something with them after your death, that's good, I don't know, but 
like you're sitting on a vast amount of value in terms of these shares. Why? So I intend to donate almost all of them to charity. So there's a fixed dollar amount that I have pledged to my kids when they're old so they won't ruin their life, you know, uh, but, you know, just they can buy a house and get the education they want if I were to die prematurely. What, what's old? 30, 35? Like, well, what is the- Yeah, well, like, I think there's like a, a tiny chunk that comes maybe in their 20s so they can buy a home and then okay. like, and by the way, I should check the inflation adjustment. I'm sure they can still buy a home. Here. <laughs> so, you know, like this last I looked, I think my my thinking was back when I first they, bought a home. They might have to yeah. move inland a little bit, but okay. Yeah, they might have to move yeah. down 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 to a smaller home than they're used to. But <laughs> um, but but what the point is, it's a small fixed amount, not a very. So it doesn't mm -hmm. matter if my personal wealth goes up 10x, it drops 90% as it's once done. They get this little bit the fixed dollar. Everything else is pledged to charity in my living trust slash will. And to be fair, I have donated shares along the way that Jerry's and tenants still do so. But I like to tell entrepreneurs, I'm gonna be holding on longer than you are. And, like, and only in a few cases do I believe them when they say, no, no, I'm gonna be holding than you, the ultimate total or whatever, the crypto. Yeah, hold on um, to your life, yeah. Exactly. So, so that's that's where yeah, it was just the misspelling of hold. No, 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 <laughs> no, no, no. Hodler is a type of a crypto yeah, investor. Yeah. It's hold on for dear well, life. I knew, that, I knew what it was associated with. Yeah. I just didn't yeah. know it was an acronym. Okay. Yeah. So, anywho, so it's wonderful in a variety of ways. First off, it's sort of like long term alignment with an entrepreneur. It's not like, oh, hey, here's a get rich quick opportunity. I'm looking at hopefully the same side of the table and the same perspectives as someone who is a missionary who is trying to change the world for the better and not punch out the first opportunity. Second is I filter on the front end for companies that I think will have impact over that time frame. So we don't invest in gaming. We don't invest in things like consumer hardware, by the way, which never lasts 20 years. Like to try to find, except for Apple, anytime in the last 40 years, has there ever been a consumer hardware company that's joined every value for more than 20 years? You can't find it, they don't exist. And even though there's thousands of venture capitalists investing in the sector, they have to time an exit for M&A. Like mm -hmm. we sold the company, you know, like Nest or Dropcam or you name it, Flip, the video just goes forever. Yeah. It's astounding actually to see what may actually be tens of thousands of companies, none of which has created long-term value. So we don't do any of those because we're thinking long-term. And it really helps, I don't know, keep me on the, uh, actually I put it the right path of filtering for what I say I'm doing, which is companies that are going to change the world for the better over 50 year time frame. Well, if I'm holding for 50 years, you know, that tends to be self reinforcing, right? All right. So let's talk about those numbers then. So mm -hmm. if you, if you Google your name and net worth, you get oh, very, you get a very wide range, but you know, not to be uncouth. I'm really disturbed by the way that A, you've done this and B, that it <laughs> pops up as you just letter a few letters on my last name. The Google search, yeah. you know, algorithm suggests that that's what you'd want to look for. In indeed, it does. Although I will say it's actually a pretty common thing where you type in people's names for net worth to come up okay. as, a, as a suggestion. So if it makes it's you feel any better, it's a sad reflection of humanity. Very sad. Yeah. What do you it's do with also, that? It's also like height comes up. I mean, it's like a really. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So what? Just what? Start, wait, googling, wait, just start googling people's names and see what drops down. You'll see. I mean, it's these are the things people care about. I mean, it's just the reality. You know, that's there, nobody's googling how much good is Steve Jobertson done in the world. Sorry to tell you. But let me just tell you one thing. It's nothing to do with podcasts, but I have to share it now. Okay. Okay. Funniest Google exercise. A stand-up comic shared this. Type in how come, and then a letter of the alphabet, and then oh. auto-populate the most common questions that someone thought the phrase is how come. Okay. Well, well and, and this is a certain segment of America. It is mind-boggling. Wow. What comes up? Pick any letter. I can't no. wait to see. Yeah. I, I'm going to do this. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I promise you I'll do it. And if I see anything funny, it'll be in the show notes at businessforgoodpodcast.com. <laughs> so depressing, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah so, yep. so is much of the life. Yep. But I, I won't be so uncouth as to ask you your network. But as you know, there are many articles out there saying that, you know, this guy's worth a couple billion dollars. And they, refer, mm -hmm. they constantly are referring to these articles, say, billionaire Steve Jurtson. 
I've talked to many billionaires, <laughs> and you know, many of them they have yachts, they have got private planes. I mean, you don't have a yacht. That's right. You don't have any private plane. No. One time I talked to you, you were in an airport, you were getting off of Southwest, you said. Mm. From what I can I'll be flying it again next month, I know. You're on Southwest yes. next month, all right. San so, Diego, yeah. Mm. And so my question is like, what do you do with your money? Because like, you know you have all this money that's locked up in the shares of these companies, but you've had big exits for that river cash, and you know like you have enough money to lead a comfortable life. So what do you actually spend your money on? Well, I invest in startups. So I invest, you know, the single biggest investment I make is in future ventures. In okay, because like, why not? So you, um, you're an LP in future ventures yeah, as well. About five percent of the fund. And again, most of the investments are shares, and so they're not unless I sell them, and I'm not selling them. They just accumulate and give them the charity. So mm -hmm. I, basically, I'm trying to become smarter as a philanthropist. There's a couple of major themes that my wife and I are super passionate about, but we're learning, right? And we, I realized looking back 20 years ago, 15 years ago, I donated the things I didn't care as much about. I mean, the report, land conservation, for example, moderately important, but it's so criminal and so localized anyway. So, so, so there's other things that, that intrigue me. And then I just sort of, let's just accumulate some, I just don't neat things. I like, like I enjoy experiences with people, meaning I would enjoy going on someone else's boat or someone else's <laughs> plane to an interesting place to have some fun, but I don't really see it as a good use of money to spend on these things myself. And it's also incredibly wasteful resources. Like, yeah. It's insane, right? Yachting in particular. So, I mean, like power dots, not sailboats, right? So I just, you know, I accumulate space artifacts, but that doesn't really add up to that much. So, well, if you've had more, you know, let's say some event occurred and you had a hundred million dollars more than you do now, would it, would you do something different in your life? No, that, that, that fluctuation happens sometimes yeah. once a month. And, and so I think I lost a hundred million already this month. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so your life, maybe because of your wealth or maybe because of the success that you've had of picking all these companies, like you, you have had much higher than market returns. Like if somebody just mm -hmm. put their money with you, they're not getting like the average, like S&P 500, 7% on average per year. Right. What are they getting with you? If somebody invests mm -hmm. in, in future ventures and obviously past performance is a guarantee of future performance, but what do you tell them? Like, hey, here's what my investments have averaged over the time. What, what is it? Well, generally we don't answer it. I, I will, no one's asked me this before, believe it or not. That it is, that is. They uh, might in private right. conversations and, yeah. and, but, and we never broadcast it. So you won't find it written ever and anywhere mm -hmm. online. So nothing that publishes. So let me, I'll wave my hands a little bit. It's, a, it's over 40% annual compounded so far, but it's early days to future ventures. This firm was four years old. You mm -hmm. know, we wouldn't normally measure it. Normally a venture fund by an early stage venture fund, the IRR, mm -hmm. their annual rate of return is negative for the first year or two. It's called the J curve. Yeah. Not named after me, but the phenomenon that looks like a J <laughs> because you're incurring expenses, you don't have any IPOs yet right. in the first year or two, you don't have any acquisitions of companies. So what's generating value in you know, private markets come later? So make a long story short, nevertheless, we're up above 40% in both our funds. And then also going back five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, I think in 25 years, it's the same, mm. above 40%. Yeah. Throughout my entire career. It's pretty substantial. I mean, so mm -hmm. basically you're, you're beating the market by, you know, fourfold or, or fivefold or even sixfold. I mean, that's, 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 that's something to, to sneeze at. So go back to my question though. So because you're generating this type of astronomical pun intended returns, <laughs> and maybe, you know, just because of people's fascination with those uh, of great means, like your life has become pretty public. Like you mm -hmm. end up, you know, in the news because like Sergey Brin and Elon Musk are at a party of yours, or there's like, you know, these, you know, I, the, the, so I'm really good about not letting that get out there. The first, the way the news got out is Elon yeah. 
shared a photo he took right. there. Like, oh, crash. Right. But yeah, I mean, you were <laughs> yeah. in the news because, you know, with the Twitter acquisition stuff, mm -hmm. like they were saying, like you were texting Elon about people who you thought from Microsoft he could, you know, hire and so on. Like, mm -hmm. you know, things that you do in your day-to-day -day life end up making the news. So my question for you is this, like, how does that impact how you live? Like you're saying you're good about not letting those type of things get out there, but knowing like, you know, you know, Steve Jurvetson 25 years ago probably could have led a different type of life than Steve Jurvetson today. Yeah. And so how does it impact like how you live knowing that merely text messaging a friend of yours yeah. might end up in the New York Times? That's weird. Like, let that sink in. A message that's completely unrelated yeah. to anything suddenly becomes a public Thing it's kind of mind-boggling. Right. Like I didn't know that was possible. Yeah. So that you yeah. have like the fact that like a text message mm -hmm. you send to a friend might end up in the New York Times. Right. How does that impact? Right. Like, and, your life? By the way, I'm never even remotely implicated in anything that's going on with that legal yes. case. Like, yeah. Yeah. You're on the you're, you're completely on the outside. Very, very outside yeah. Very, um, yeah. Which is even more bizarre. Right. Yeah. Okay. So it definitely makes me a little more gun shy. I'm a little slow learner in this regard of like okay, I like years ago would say things like you know, never email anything that you don't want to eventually see in the papers and be ashamed that or embarrassed, right? So I, I've always known that you know something that might eventually become public. Mm -hmm. Didn't occur to me texting was equally, I just kind of dumbly, but like, wow. And the things that don't seem embarrassing really in context can become really embarrassing out of context, mm -hmm. right? Like when shared in the way we do in modern media, let's take the salacious little tidbit and, and blow right. it up um, or make it salacious when it's not. So that is difficult. Uh, and I think, you know, speaking beyond myself, I know for a variety of tech entrepreneurs and others who just love to have a normal life, they'd be able to kick back on a weekend and hang out with friends. And, and the fact that everything they do could end up in the press, like they confiscate cameras, they put I mean, you know, phones, right? They confiscate all phones at the door, all these headaches just to like, we don't really want, we have to have a party this weekend without any of the photos. Like, right. Yeah, it, it, you have to do that. So I haven't stopped living my life, but it just, it's anxiety provoking. And a lot more screening on who you invite to come over to your house. It's like, do you yeah. trust everyone? And like, uh, inevitably, I guess, I don't know if the press offers money or how they get people to talk about things that really, they, it's like, really? <laughs> Yeah, it's not clear to me. I, I think that some people just may like to feel important that a, a national mm -hmm. journalist wants to talk to them. And well, when they do it anonymously, it's kind of weird. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Why? Why, why? Why are you doing that? I don't know. It's mysterious to me. Yeah. You have led an illustrious career. You've had more success than most people will ever dream of having. There's a lot of people out here who are listening to this show who are interested in having some type of success. Maybe they're an investor. Maybe they're an entrepreneur. Maybe they end up being both of them at some point in their life. What resources would you suggest to them? Anything you think that would be useful, maybe it's been useful for you, or just that you recommend that you think they should check out books, speeches, anything else that you think would be useful for them? For entrepreneurs in particular. Yeah. So it's a tough one. The, the, it's tough because there's such diversity of entrepreneurship. So it'd be like saying, who should you model yourself after <laughs> if you want to be a successful CEO? Well, gosh, that's a not a simple answer. There isn't, in fact, a single role model. There isn't a single, and all our heroes are imperfect, as Joseph Bull once sung about. Uh, and everyone's different, right? So I would say, certainly for venture capitalists, there's an enormous diversity of backgrounds that I think correlate with success in different models, different strategies. Similarly, for entrepreneurs, even more so, it's like it's all over the map. You know, do you need to be an extrovert? No, of course not. Do you need to be a high basal metabolic rate, which I once thought, but then I realized, you know, it, it, my own folly, that's what we call homophily bias. Like, I think 
that what it takes to be successful in general is, you know, attributes that sound like myself, right? Like <laughs> you speak quickly and articulately, you know, like whatever I might think of myself, I just start with, well, of course that's what it would take to succeed, yeah. to be yeah. like me, right? But it, it takes conscious overcoming that to then look around at the data and say, well, shit, people who are completely unlike me are doing quite well in venture capital with strategies that have nothing to do with technology-centric investing, have nothing to do with changing the world for the better, or chasing the latest thing in crypto or gaming and whatever, and they're making money hand over fist, God bless them, right? But that's not what I want to do. But I got to acknowledge they're doing just fine. So the same with entrepreneurship. And, and what one might read or consume might be slightly filtered by the belief I have that A, many different backgrounds to be successful, B, having a co-founder that's cognitively diverse is probably more important than just thinking, do I have it all figured out? So like, who do I want to actually start this company with? Almost every great company I can think of has had like a co-pilot. Sometimes they're invisible, like Larry Ellison had one in the form of Bob Miner, or they're very visible, you know, a Jobs and Wozniak, classic, maybe example, everyone knows of, you know, this extrovert, this introvert, this marketeer, this engineer, they're as different as they come, like, Laurel and Hardy, but they had respect for each other and built a culture that had respect for the first I think, veteran folks came out. Same for Tim Draper when they joined him at Draper Associates and so forth. So that's one important guy. The second is, therefore, whatever advice I can give on, hey, read this book, follow this example, yeah, it's going to differ. And in fact, the advice I would give an entrepreneur is think about what you uniquely can do in this world that there aren't 100 other people that could do it. So, Hopefully it correlates with what you're passionate about, but it could be something as bizarre as, oh wow, I hadn't spent a big part of my life taking care of an elder parent who was sick and dying, and I happen to have interesting language skills in some other area. Well, okay, if I take those, what insight did that give me? Perspective, empathy, the aha for helping with elder care, maybe in certain regions of the world that no one else is doing, like I alone could do this. That could be, as an offer, an important thing, like why me? You know, it's a great idea, but why am I the one that would go after this? And usually it's taking advantage of something bizarre in your background that not everyone shares. Hmm. Right? Passion for animals, perhaps in your case, whatever it might be. So then given that, there are, of course, I think a synthesis of biographies. There's been a lot of great you know, books on entrepreneurs and leaders. Walter Isaacson's book comes to mind, whether it's, you know- His book on Steve Jobs. Yeah. Exactly, Steve Jobs, which I loved, or his new one I'm um, just starting on Jennifer Doudna, or- Who, who invented CRISPR. Exactly, but again, yeah. yeah, Code Breakers is the name of that book. Or, you know, recent books I've read like, uh, the Founders by Jimmy Sonny about PayPal in its early days. And since I gave the first term sheet to PayPal, I was just kind of curious on everything I missed, having not invested in that one by not chasing it higher. There's some other great books that I've loved, basically just tracking people and their stories. And, and the reason I say this more generally is some will resonate more from what you might know of the founders than others and like go to those books that sound amazing. I think those stories are really what we synthesize when we think about what correlates with success. So I've found, by the way, that ever since I gave up drinking about four and a half years ago that I could read books again at night instead of having to drink every night. It just, it's astounding to reclaim that. <laughs> something that could, for many people, be perceived as a superpower. In fact, I think Naval Ravikant says that like, his superpower is he reads a lot of books. Huh? I'm like, just do it. And I know you do too. So this, this is, I see you smiling. I appreciate the choir, but if you were to read a book every two weeks in areas that seem like a random walk around what you're interested in, you're gonna be so much more capable than those who don't. Because there's that long form thinking Someone actually can synthesize their thoughts into a book format. It makes it very different from just scroll holing through social media all day long right. you know, as your spare time. Yeah. So I am smiling for the reason you noted. One, I, I, I do try to read a lot, but I, I have tried to maximize my time while reading. And so I have a rule that I 
only read while walking on a treadmill. And so go. I can get in any type of cardio I want to get in for that day while reading. So good life hack. Yeah. Uh, it's mm-hmm. definitely like, you know, feeding two birds with one spoon to, to use an animal friendlier <laughs> version of that, of that thing there. Yeah. I was also smiling because you're talking about how you don't drink. And I was thinking, you know, very few people don't drink. I am one of them who also doesn't drink. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think that one day we will both share not only a teetotaling behavior, but in a meat totaling behavior. We'll see. We'll see. Right. We'll oh, see. I know. I, I know we'll I'll see. be with yeah, you. We'll see what I get you. With you. I uh, was for six months and then I fell off the wagon. Yeah, you're one, of, you're one of the yeah. 90%. Finally, 7,000 pitches per year, but obviously there are companies that you want to see. So what are the companies that don't exist that you hope somebody will exist or will create or bring into existence. So one that I can't really define very well is something that will radically improve construction, by the way. So I think an epiphany that occurred in some later stage investors, public market people was like, wow, look what Tesla did to automotive, look what SpaceX did to aerospace, like no competitive response from incumbents, massive, formerly unattractive industries, frankly, became radically restructured as a software-centric, simulation-driven kind of business with dynamic change and excitement once again, right? So much more life in the automotive and aerospace sector than before. Construction's kind of like that, right? 30 years of backwards backsliding on labor productivity. There's a huge construction project across the street as we're recording this. I watched this take over a year to build. It's just insane the way construction hmm. is, has a lot of fruits yeah. and it's growing this percent of GDP. So just, I don't know what the solution is, but 50 years from now, this should be automated, digitized in many different ways, whether it's prefab, you know, yeah. something, right? It could just be autocracies like China. I mean, they're, they're oh, like, yeah, they seem like- Oh yeah, 100X faster yeah, is, like is recently tweeted. Yeah, I don't know if that's the answer because they also tend to make these, these completely homogenous looking snap and repeat. Mm. Yeah, also, you know, parts, like right? pretty, pretty bad for the environment too. Yep. Okay, so yeah. that's one, but I don't know the answer. Here's one where I have a more precise answer to your question. Kind of like I said, five, you know, 10 years ago, I put out this thing saying, hey, who can figure out how to scale cellular manufacturing as we call it today? in a way that was believable, but I want to invest in that. There, I only have one of those currently outstanding, like a specific thing I want to see someone do. And that is what I affectionately call free healthcare forever. The idea is the vast majority of healthcare is diagnosis, not surgery. And if you need, a, if you need to do something, it's like take this pill or what have you, right? And, and for most of the developing world, this is a diarrheal diseases and this is like, it, you, you could do a lot over a cell phone. So the, the, the idea I have is you, you're gonna have the next to rebuilding coming online, like the Starlink presupposition. You can't, I can't imagine a future given current income disparity that I think will continue growing for reasons, get into what you want, where we'll have a stable future in a society we wanna live in if basic human needs are not provided for. And basic human needs at the bottom line, my list, higher human needs are food, shelter, clothing, and I would have education and healthcare, right? And education is being, and free online education, I think that one's being addressed. I th- strangely, I think food, shelter, and clothing are like, give me everything's going to cost a dollar a pound in the future. Or it's not going to be the thing that you're, how should I put it, starving for. But healthcare is. It's currently broken. It's not available to many people. Even within rich countries, it's not good and not available to a lot of people. And it's just completely out of control. So what would be an alternative? I can't imagine a future where you'd pay for information search on health. Like, what's my situation and what should I do about it? It's like a Google search for your personal health. Given all of the advancements being made across the medical field, that should be free. Because like Google, there's all kinds of other ways to make money on a true unbiased AI that provides information on what to do. So what I'm envisioning is something that bootstraps in the developing world probably from a company not based in America that is ignoring the FDA, is ignoring reimbursement insurance, just like I'm never gonna talk to a regulatory body, I'm never gonna talk to an insurance company. I'm gonna actually help people. Right? And this is hard to get started because people need to trust this product and it's fledging in years. So I don't know how you get started, but I've seen a bunch of people with proposals on how to get started who are trying to do this. 
but probably for less than $10 million, if you bootstrap this business, get started, if you could find adoption, and you'd have the most data. Because the tit for tat would be, I will give you the best unadulterated information. Yes, you should take this pill, no, or you should go in and see a real doctor in, in the village if you're far, far away from your village. In exchange, you should tell me what happened. It's basically real world outcomes treatment. So the only thing you gotta give back as a consumer is, you tell me what you did and did it wrong. Did you take the, you know, local shaman's, you know, route? Sure, tell me if you did, did it get better? Did you take an aspirin? Call me, boy, call me, boy. Tell me if the aspirin worked. That tit for tat is a big score in data feed. We don't have it today. The fact that we don't close that feedback loop is astounding. You'd have the best AI soon on planet Earth. And I think it starts with a voice interface so illiterate people can access it as well as literate. And eventually it will be better because of all this data. And by crude analogy, the best eye surgery is all these clients in India that do it all day long, right? They set up for the experience curve. The physicians have done the most procedures. They have the best success rate, not surprisingly, at that eye surgery. Similarly, with the most data, you're gonna have the best AI, you know, the best diagnostic tool in the industry. So eventually they'll switch to using cameras to bring your dermatology analysis, you know, all kinds of other things you can use with the camera that comes later. But initially it's just gonna be like, tell me what, tell me what you got and I'll help you out. Well, you heard it here. What Steve Jerkerson is looking for to exist that doesn't yet exist. Uh, I've had a great time in the conversation. There's a lot I still want to talk about, maybe some other time, especially Russia and Ukraine, which we I know you have very strong views on, not just socially, but also from an investment perspective. So some other time we'll talk about that and a whole host of other things. And I hope that somebody pitches you on this free healthcare forever uh, idea as well. So Steve, great to talk with you. Thanks so much. And I will be rooting for your continued success. Oh, thank you. Thanks for listening. We hope you found use in this episode. If so, don't keep it to yourself. Please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. And as always, we hope you will be in the business of doing good.